the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about five thousand in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, but immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of God, amen. Good morning, God's beloved people. It's good for me to be home with you again after a number of weeks away, preaching and celebrating in sister churches whose clergy are vacationing. And today... Our rector and his wife are vacationing. Uh, They'll be back next week. We were also away for a family vacation. There was actually a family wedding in France that we attended. 
And uh, while we were there on that happy occasion, we had the opportunity to visit again Chartres Cathedral. I don't know if any of you have been there. I'm sure some of you have. Uh, many, many years ago, when Bill and I were newlyweds, we had visited Chartres. The weather was cold and raw that day. I remember so vividly. It was December 8th. 1971, and there weren't any other visitors, maybe because the weather was so cold, it was the middle of the week. And so we had the English language guide, uh, the famous, the now famous Malcolm Miller, all to ourselves. So he took us on a two-hour tour down into the crypt and above into the tower and explaining as we went the stories on the windows and in the limestone, and how everything in that beautiful cathedral corresponds to everything else. The numbers, the stories, the colors. It's as though there's call and response in every, every corner of the place, every facet of the place. And uh, he helped us to see how this this work of art is a microcosm of the world envisioned by faithful people who constructed it. A microcosm of a world that is all of a piece, where there is harmony and unity in every place, and where all the stories have their color and their, and their light to shed on the whole, and how the whole is irradiated by God's grace. So, oh, it was wonderful to go back, and I am happy to tell you that 40 years didn't change the power of that cathedral to communicate its message. Um, and, in fact, it almost seemed as though everything that had happened in those 40 years was gathered in a new way in dialogue with this, uh, with this beautiful witness in limestone and grass and marble to the message of the scriptural faith. A cosmic vision of the universe charged with the grandeur of God, in the words of Gerard Manley Hopkins. It is a and a piece of religious art, that whole cathedral, akin to the greatest music, say, of J.S. Bach, communicating with that kind of power and subtlety and mystery, uh, the spiritual reality that goes beyond our words to speak. So, like Bach's music has for so many people, Chartres' sacred art shaped my spiritual outlook for the rest of my life since that first visit. And, and this is one of the reasons why I want to tell you this, it resonated in my soul, too, 25 years ago, when I first came here to Trinity Church and heard, so to speak, the graceful music of the windows in the chapel, seeing the contemporary colors and forms um, mirroring and echoing the more traditional windows. But then, to my amazement, 
coming into this church and learning that the Trinity window had been crafted in shot in the shadow of that great cathedral by a mid-20th century stained glass artist whose name I have to look up. This fiery symbol in glass and light represents to us here the creative and generative and reconciling divine love that stands over our common prayer and presides over the events of our common lives, the events from baptism to burials, the events from birth to entering into God's other kingdom. It speaks to me every time I come here of Trinity's living connection with that sacramental vision of the world radiant with grace, that vision so ancient and so new, so ancient. It's so ancient that it far predates the Cathedral of Schott and the music of J.S. Bach. And we can say with certainty, well, who knows how far back it goes because it's written in the book of nature and it's written in the book of life. But we know for sure that that same vision is spelled out for us in the literature of the Bible, the sacred literature of the Bible, all the different voices, all the different stories, colors like the colors of a stained glass window that in the aggregate tell the whole story. So, and the scriptures we heard today, they really put it together to me. Uh, That first reading, Monday morning, I read that and I thought, oh, (laughs) this uh, unlovely story of King David's. You'll remember if you were here last week, we heard the earlier portion from the book of Samuel about God's covenant with David, God's promise to stand by David and his descendants in steadfast love from generation to generation, no matter what. So this morning, we hear of David's response to that gift. Ah. (laughs) David, whose duty is to defend the people against their enemy, stays home while he sends his troops to the front. He enjoys luxury while the men are in the field of battle. And one lazy afternoon, he rouses himself from an after-lunch nap, acts the peeping tom, seduces the pretty wife of one of his officers, and then to cover up his multiple betrayals, arranges the murder of a dutiful soldier, of a good man. It seems so contemporary in some ways, doesn't it? You know, they say we read the New York Times in one hand and the Bible on the other hand. It brings to mind other ugly stories of unfaithful abuse of trust. It brings to mind one of the lines of Shakespeare's sonnet, sonnets, the expense of spirit in a, in a waste of shame is lust in action. 
And as a response to that first reading, Psalm 14, did you catch how it reads like a sorrowful commentary on the failure of even God's anointed David to do his duty and to keep the faith? Oh, there is no one who does good. No, not one, the psalmist sings darkly. Well, so where's the good news? Well, let me try to, try to, try to say that real life stories like this one reflect a core insight of biblical faith in the aggregate. That human nature, at best, is morally frail, corrupt and corruptible, and sometimes even monstrous. Lust or greed or envy or cruelty or pride or selfishness, the list is long, evidently something for every temperament and every situation in life. And even heroes like our David and even the saints Truth be told, if God sees all and knows all, then we are all sinners in God's sight. So that's why we make moral rules and practice ethical disciplines to steady us in a world made turbulent by our own sins and by the sins of others. Beset by so many competing forces and desires, we reach out to the divine commandments and the rules articulated by wise teacher, teachers like people sinking in a turbulent sea. But even then, so you could say, <coughs> that's the bad news. God knows there's plenty of bad news. But here's the thing. To grasp this truth is a first step toward freedom. Freedom, because it is true, and because it unmasks the million strategies we invent to hide from the unpalpable truth about us. Because it shatters the idols we make of ourselves or of others to escape from facing the reality that neither this guru, nor that political figure, nor that rock star, nor that father figure, or even my real self, is truly the source of all goodness. It allows us to give up our confusion and illusion and delusion in order to see the truth that we all are sinners, all standing in need of reconciling grace that is far more than all we can ask or imagine. And you hear there the lines of the writers, the writer of the letter to the Ephesians. So you see, the bad news seen clearly is the beginning of the good news. The good news that there is a power far greater than our worst sins in all their guises and disguises. A power that is infinitely understanding, infinitely generative, infinitely loving, infinitely reconciling. 
as the author of the letter to the Ephesians sees, this power is at work in us to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. That is why I fall to my knees, he writes, overcome by a vision of the breadth and length and height and depth of that divine love that surpasses all that we think we know. And that is why I pray, he says, that you may be strengthened in your inner being, rooted and grounded in a love that does not fail, a love that does no harm. Hear how his language spills out in superlatives. You almost stumble over them trying to read them. Um, abundantly, far more than all we can ask or imagine. So great. So great. The gospel according to John makes this vision of God in relation to us concrete in the miracles, the loaves and the fishes and Jesus walking on the water. These are vivid experiences of divine abundance and generosity and sovereignty over the turbulence of this world. Now, there are many ways to understand what happens in these miracles of Jesus. And I, I am in constant dialogue with family members for whom natural explanations are the only things that are make any sense. Uh, so you could say, whoa, perhaps the crowd was moved by Jesus' teaching to share the food they had tucked away secretly for themselves. Or you could say, perhaps Jesus was actually standing on the shore when those disciples, crazed by fear, drew near and seemed to see him walking across the water to draw them safely to shore. You could... Put it that way, but that doesn't even begin, doesn't even begin to exhaust what happens here. I myself, to prefer, I myself prefer to read them as they are written, as sacred literature, as the art of the spirit that tells in image and story about an abundance far more than all we can ask or imagine. A truth that goes far beyond our words to tell. Scripture as a whole and in the aggregate delivers profound insights to those of us who have ears to hear or who prepare our ears to hear. Yes, sin endures in the hearts of human beings. Yes, tragedy is real. Nevertheless, We have heard, we have seen, we have felt the power that is infinitely greater than all of that. In Christ, God's deep purpose is revealed. That human beings will be reconciled to one another in a universe restored to unity and harmony. And so let us set our sights according to that vision according to that grace and let us make our decisions and our peace in the light of that love.
for God's sake, in Jesus' name. Amen.